You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. Help us to see Christ. Help us to understand it. Help us to experience the peace of your kingdom. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I told Patrick Gozier when he came in here, I was floored with disappointment this year that it's gone. The Advent UFO is gone, and they just went to measly old candles, which put our measly candles even to shame. But... Uh, it's all right. I've already told you the last couple of weeks that I've, I love this time of year. There's even snow this morning. It was great. I love listening to Christmas music, but I love singing Christmas music uh, even more with you guys. Uh, if you read the blog post that we linked to in the weekly email this week, you'll hopefully see, and Clint kind of explained already at the beginning of the service, why we think it's important to take four weeks to prepare to wait for Christmas Day. In the past 60 or 70 years, in America anyway, Christmas has become a season that begins on Thanksgiving, maybe even Halloween. Even in the most like Christ-centered Christmas special of them all. You know what it all is, right? It's a Charlie Brown Christmas. It's like the gospel just is oozing out of that 22 minutes or whatever it is. But even in that, uh, the children are singing for, I don't know how long it's supposed to be, but at least for days before Christmas of Christmas time is here, right? I'm not going to sing it like a little child, an annoying Peanuts child in that, anyway. But Christmas time, right? The entire season has arrived. It's here. The waiting and the building has largely gone away, and the celebrating lasts for an entire month. There's, you'll undoubtedly go to five or six different Christmas parties, uh, each with their own presents, their own festivities. And so that the actual day of December 25th is still kind of a culmination, but it's more just like a necessary end 
to the whole thing, right? Do you feel this? Like kind of a Christmas season fatigue so that like finally it's here and we can just move back on with our lives. I think this is what happens when we, it draws out for so long. I'm not trying to be a Scrooge. In our house, we, we do all the things, right? We've, we watched How the Grinch Stole Christmas the other night. Uh, we do all the things. Uh, we'll go to five or six Christmas parties and we'll have a good time doing it. By the way, I don't know where Seth went. Uh, Seth confessed to me tonight that he loves uh, Hallmark Christmas movies. And his favorite Hallmark Christmas movie is about a firefighter who adopts a cat named what? Ambrose. Ambrose. Yeah. Uh, Should have kept your mouth shut, Seth. Klondike Seth, man. Uh, Anyway, uh, anyway, th- this is why we as a church, though, we want to take some time to cultivate a season of waiting, of longing. Your uh, culture and your TVs and your playlists around you won't because Christmas time has already arrived. Uh, so we hope to cultivate a sense of longing and waiting and expectation uh, that lasts for four weeks, but then can hopefully translate through the rest of the year as we wait and expect Christ's second coming. So uh, we have last, last year we took four weeks to go through the traditional Advent themes through some Christmas stories that we all know from some of the gospel accounts. Uh, we're going to go through uh, these four themes as they just come to us pretty amazingly uh, through Romans chapter 8. Admittedly, we're parachuting right into this thing, right? Uh, completely ignoring the context of the first seven chapters of this letter. But whatever, it's Christmas. We're just going to do it, all right? Uh, so peace. Peace is a word, is a theme, is an anthem this time of year. You, you see it as a word either on a ball Christmas ornament or perhaps you have an ornament that just has like silver letters of peace. Uh, you'll see it written on walls on, like during the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Uh, you'll undoubtedly hear John Lennon sing dozens and dozens and dozens of times on the radio the next month. Uh, he, he'll sing, and so happy Christmas for black and for white, for yellow and red ones, let's stop all the fights. And then the children at the end of this song will sing, war is over, war is is over. John and Yoko's campaign of war is over if you want it. This was a big deal that they were pushing in the late 60s. They had been going uh, for a couple years and that John thought, John Lennon thought that this would be a good, what better place to put our protest of peace than in a Christmas song. And so they sang war is over even though the Vietnam War would last for four more years in a Christmas song. But why? Why would peace be a traditional Christmas idea and theme? Why might German and British soldiers take a day off from killing one another on Christmas Day in 1914 in World War I and just play soccer with one another? Why might something like this happen? Is it just a, I don't know, just some nostalgic feeling, this just emotional feeling of togetherness or something that I think John and Yoko were pushing? I don't think so. So let's think through this theology of peace from Romans 8 in three sections together tonight. The need for peace, the effects of peace, and the goal of peace. So first of all, in these first four verses, if you've got a Bible and you can find Romans 8, Romans 8, 1 through 4, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, you know, the old preacher adage is, right, that therefore is there for a reason, right? You know all that. This, these, in this first phrase, there is therefore, he's referring back to something. So can we back it up just a bit? Not just to Romans 1.1, but to the very beginning. Can we start for just a second here at Genesis 1.1? That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in the eternal, pre-existent happiness, delight, and joy that was shared in and amongst the triune God, uh, God created the universe and the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, uh, to share in that happiness, to share in that delight, in that joy and love. Not because he needed us, the triune God was lacking in some way, so he needed to experience this someone who would love him back in that way. No, the triune God experienced this kind of love at the highest form of beauty and joy imaginable. All these characteristics of delight and joy were both focused inward on and amongst each other of the three persons of the Trinity, but then in creation like exploded through and past and outward these things were wonderful. Everything that God created, it was all good. He created man. He created Adam and placed him in Eden, a kind of proto-temple, a place where Adam, the priest, could work and keep it to live with God in perfect joy and delight and perfect rest and perfect peace and shalom, flourishing as humanity was intended to flourish. There was no wondering if on Adam's part, if he was measuring up to God's standard. There was no comparing himself with others and feeling a sense of moral superiority against them, only humility. There was no um, comparing himself with others and then being crushed with doubt. Maybe I'm not living as well as they are. And then feeling shame, no only confident friendship with God. There was no fear, there was no isolation, only peace. And this is the paradigm for how humans are meant to live and dwell with God. But how long does that take? How, how long did that last in the story of humanity? Like a page, right? Genesis 1 and 2. Unlike the second page of your Bible, things go horribly, horribly wrong. Adam and Eve, just like every human being that would follow them, uh, they doubt God's word. They doubt God's goodness. They assume that he's holding out on them. They assume that he's holding back some sort of full joy. They make, for them, they make themselves the arbiter of right and wrong. They make themselves to be the ruler of the garden. They revolt against the good king. They revolt against their king, their father, their friend. They no longer have friendship with him. They are now at odds with him. So he sends them from this place of peace, from this place of dwelling with him. Because of their rebellion, because of their treason, the world begins to quickly and then exponentially devolve. Not just shame and fear and isolation that we see in Genesis 3, but then all kinds of violence and slavery and abuse of power and twisting of sexuality and all other kinds of idolatry, both at individual levels and then quickly at systemic and governmental and at national levels. And then... Out of all of that, out of the world at which is rebelling against God, uh, God calls one man to become a nation, which will be the means, the conduit through which God will restore the world, which will reconcile the world and once again bring peace. 
He calls a man named Abraham, and what follows is the story of the rest of the Old Testament. And it's a story of us wondering, how will God restore peace? Is this nation growing or is it failing? How will he restore and reconcile things? And as we go throughout the Old Testament, different prophets begin to tighten our vision and understanding of a future reality where it won't be this nation perhaps figuring out a way, figuring out a, the, the way to make itself right and make the world right to make peace, but actually someone from this nation. You heard Clint read and prepare us tonight from Isaiah 9. This from around the year 700 BC, where Isaiah saw a time where he said, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. So it won't just be a it won't be the nation of Israel that figures things out and makes peace. It won't just be a human king from Israel who, are, who will figure things out and make peace. But it will be God himself who will be Israel's king. It will be God himself who comes and lives now as a second Adam, who will live and obey, who will keep the law, who will intercede and live as a priest, who will reign as king. Israel bound in physical slavery and then even bound in spiritual slavery. The inability to please God, even the desire to want to please God, might have sung a similar song to the one that we sang earlier. Looking forward to a day, O come, O come, true prophet of the Lord, and turn the key of heaven's door. Be thou our comforter and guide and lead us to the Father's side. Lead us once again back to a place of belonging, a friendship with God. And so when Jesus of Nazareth shows up on the scene, he's not like some this interesting rabbi with some carpentry skills, with some interesting thoughts about who God is and who humanity is. No, he's the one who the gospel writers portray as the prophet, the priest, the king, the one whom Israel has been waiting for, the one who will bring reconciliation between God and man, the one who would live for the nations, that they might, he might live and die for the nations as their substitute. That they might once again be brought near to God. That they might experience peace, shalom, flourishing with God as he has intended. And so, to some degree, Paul has been thinking through many of those themes and realities in Romans 1 through 7. So that when he gets to Romans 8, 1, therefore... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When the pre-existent word of God, the second person of the triune God, takes on flesh, as we professed earlier in Philippians 2, of that of taking the form of a servant, he enters the world of oppression and of idolatry and of hatred. Humans hating each other and hating God he comes into that world, into the thick of it, not born into a palace, but born into a manger. And he's born to do away with the greatest enemy, the one that has separated humanity from God since the second page of the Bible, the enemy of sin. Paul has gone to great lengths in the preceding chapters to explain that the law was not bad, but here in these verses also explaining that the law, perfect obedience to God, could never accomplish peace because it's weakened by our sinful nature. We cannot do it. We cannot obey God. We are in a constant disposition of distrust of God and in a constant disposition of the elevation of self. On this side of separation from God, 
There is no amount of rule keeping that can get us to this side of being with God because one, we can't, but two, because we don't want it. We don't want to obey. So at the end of chapter seven, Paul asks, who will save us from this body of death? Who will bring peace? Who will make us to be with God? How might it happen? Through Christ Jesus, who has lived and died for us, that he might do away with condemnation, who might do away with separation. He has bought our peace with God. But secondly, what does it do? What does peace, reconciliation, the doing away with condemnation, what does it do? Because we no longer fear condemnation, now experience peace, can we now just live our lives in however way we'd like? I'm at peace with God, so I'm just going to keep living however I'd like. No. Secondly, the effects of peace. Verses 5 through 10, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now I know that very often I am like a walking, talking Babylon Bee article of like the stereotypical satire pastor, but... You guys have seen Infinity War, right? Uh, Okay, it's the last uh, Avengers movie. I won't spoil anything. There's massive spoilers for that movie. But at the end, at the end of that movie, most of the Avengers are like holed up in the kingdom of Wakanda, right? Wakanda forever. Uh, It's Black Panther's kingdom, and there's like this force field surrounding the palace and the, uh, I don't know, the area around where they are. They're trying to stay safe from this invading, I don't know, are they aliens? Alien horde, I don't know. And there's this force field where everyone is inside experiencing peace, but they know there's a kingdom uh, that is trying to invade and ruin it all. I think most of us kind of think that left to ourselves, we, we kind of have this understanding that we're all outside of this force field, we're all outside of this kingdom, For those of us outside of the force field who come to recognize their need and then pray that Jesus might save them, uh, we recognize what he has done for us in the cross. We look forward to one day after we die, uh, coming out of the outside and coming into this peace and security of the force field. And then we'll just wait until death to one day experience life in Wakanda, life in the kingdom. And then outside the force field, those who don't ever say the Jesus password, uh, at some point in their life, they stay outside of the force field, and then after they die, they go to an even much worse place. But across the board, the Wakandan image of salvation in the Bible is that when someone comes to faith in Christ, when someone becomes a Christian, she doesn't enter the kingdom of Wakanda once she dies. She doesn't Uh, walk around outside the force field for her whole life, biding her time, hoping that one day when she dies, she'll one day experience peace. And then even, perhaps even continuing to live her life like she did before she came to a knowledge of Christ. No, when someone becomes a Christian, he or she enters into the peace immediately, is brought 
outside in. Now this person is in Wakanda. His or her life is in the kingdom. Wakanda forever. Set right now when someone comes to faith, from death to life, from outside to inside. What was once far has now been brought near immediately. And I think this is the kind of image that Paul is describing in verse 5 when he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. When Paul says flesh, he's meaning just life apart from God. Our natural disposition, misaligned desires, misaligned worship, selfishness, hate, covetousness, doubt, fear, shame, the whole bit. Everything left to ourselves. Life outside of God's presence, our sinful nature. But one of the central arguments in this chapter that we'll see play out over the next four weeks is that the Christian can have both peace now, but also full assurance now through present life with God. Not looking forward to future life with God, but present experiential life with God now. That at the moment when a person recognizes his need for peace and turns to faith in Jesus, telling Jesus, uh, I realize that I was made to know you, made to walk with you, and I have not kept up my end of the bargain. And that I need you to keep up both my end and your end of the bargain. That person gets brought to life immediately, enveloped, intertwined into the life of the triune God. Immediate joy, delight, and peace. I mean, just look at the work of the triune God in accomplishing our salvation here. In verse 2, the spirit of life has set you free. Verse 3, God the Father has done what the law couldn't. How? By sending his Son why? Why does, the, why does the triune God work to accomplish our salvation, our salvation in this way? Not just to break us down, break our will and make us say some secret password that someday we might get to experience life, but to bring us to life with him. Life on this side of the force field, a life of joy and of peace, friendship with God, flourishing in the way that God has created us to flourish. So in this middle section, Paul isn't saying, all right, if you would like to be some super Christian, there are Christians who set their minds on the flesh and don't really experience uh, the full peace that is available to them. But if you would like to be a real super Christian, set your mind on the spirit. Make sure to read the Bible extra hard, make some New Year's resolutions to pray more in 2019. And if you don't look out, you cannot please God. This is not what he's arguing. Remember, all of this is after verse 1, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if I said a couple of weeks ago at the end of 1 Timothy 1 that Paul is uh, like giving a Mufasa moment to Timothy to remember, remember who you are, Timothy. Remember your past and what has brought you here to this moment. Here, most of the vision of this chapter and of the entire New Testament Paul included in his letters and just all of the other New Testament writers is that this is who you will be for eternity. Not necessarily remember and look forward to the past, but look for the future. This is who you will be for eternity. An ever-increasing life of joy in God. For eternity, you will have confidence, you will have meaning, you will have purpose, you will have communion and unity and friendship with God. You will have holiness, increasingly so, happiness and delight. All experienced in peace and in friendship with God forever. This is who you are for eternity, so now live into that reality now. Be now who you are forever. There is therefore no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are united to him by faith in his life and his death and his resurrection. And because that's true, now, Paul is arguing, have the mindset. See the world and your circumstances through the lens of that reality. Have the mindset of life in the spirit, of who you are for eternity now. Have that mindset. But that mindset is not natural. Our natural inclination is towards self, toward failure, toward guilt, towards, towards shame. And so the rest of my life as a Christian, filled with stumbling and with failure, with doubting and with shame, is about aligning my life, is about aligning myself, my vision, my, the way that I see and sense the world with the reality of what God has done to fix the world and to fix my life, to bring peace. And so if we're already Christians, then reading the Bible, praying, singing, meeting with one another on Sundays here in this room or together in our GCs throughout the week, all of this is intended toward daily aligning our worldview, daily aligning our desires, our mindset to the way things that they actually are. This is not a, a sense in which we gather here for a refuel up for another week out there in the world, there's a sense in which that's true. But all of these things that we do, the way that God has given himself, and just these boring old things, praying and reading the Bible is real boring. Perhaps. But these are the ways in which God realigns and uh, fixes and clarifies our vision to the way things that they actually are. One counselor says, the gospel allows us to bring our subjective guilt feelings in line with our objective guilt eradication. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And to set the mind on the spirit is a life of peace. Is to set the mind on the spirit is to experience subjectively what is true objectively. Setting our mind on the spirit to experience subjectively what is true objectively. But perhaps you're thinking, then why am I still so prone to sin? Why am I still flooded daily and weekly with so much doubt and with fear and with shame? And if Jesus came as, prince, as the Prince of Peace, that sounds uh, really good that he has made us once and for all uh, or friends with God. But man, just like turn on the news. It, didn't, it doesn't appear that his kingdom brought that much peace. Local crime, often horrendous. Wars, genocide, famine, death. Jesus either failed or his kingdom isn't actually a kingdom of peace, perhaps we might think. Well, let's see where this is going. The work of salvation, of renewal, of victory over sin by the triune God is not done. We saw our need for peace, the effects of peace, and now the goal of peace. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We'll have much more to think through in this theme uh, two weeks from now as we think about hope in verses 18 through 30 of this chapter. But this is where the season of Advent will do us some real good. The story of salvation, the story of peace, is the story of two comings. It's the story of two, the two advents of Jesus Christ. 
This perhaps wasn't altogether clear to the prophets. It certainly wasn't clear in Israel's expectations for their promised Messiah King. Jesus' own disciples were often confused, were perplexed by Jesus when he said that he must die. Peter tried to talk Jesus out of this silly nonsense, protecting him, even trying to stop him from being arrested. Like, what in the world, they must have thought. Like, Jesus, haven't you, like, ever sat down and read Psalm 2? Like, just read that thing. God is speaking about wrath and setting his king in Jerusalem, that his king will be king over the entire earth, breaking his enemy with enemies with a rod of iron. Perhaps this is what Peter was looking forward to. Judas, perhaps, looking forward to this Daniel 9 son of man who will finally bring peace to God's people by bringing judgment to God's enemies. The nations will serve him. They were expecting and looking forward to Peter and Judas, perhaps, others had no time for messianic weakness. They were here with popcorn for messianic power. But in Jesus' first advent, his weakness and death conquered an enemy far older and deeper than Rome. Peter might have assumed that by his own DNA that he was at peace with God, but the cross showed him that he wasn't. Peter might have gravitated toward Daniel 7 or Psalm 2 or Isaiah 9 and perhaps been tempted to ignore something like Isaiah 53. Surely, this is what he was reflecting on when Peter himself would later write, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." Peter realized that the peace accomplished by Jesus on the cross was far deeper and more transformative than he could have ever done by destroying the Romans. Every human on earth sharing in Adam's rebellion needed the kind of inward transformative peace that Jesus brought in his first advent. Just yesterday, I heard a rabbi in England say that Jesus failed the litmus test of being Messiah because he failed to bring a kingdom of peace. If God sent his son to bring peace, he said, then God failed. On the one hand, I felt heartbroken for this man, heartbroken for his seemingly um, optimistic and humanistic naivete that a king could just bring peace by setting up a kingdom. Maybe he'd even be a better king than David, but millennia of observation ought to show us that just a good king cannot make good people. Just living and ruling over them will not make us just decide, all right, let's all get along and let's all just obey him in selfless love. Like that's the exact same setup that Adam and Eve had in the, in the garden, right? And how long did that last? A page. What humans need is not merely God living above them, in dominion, and not merely God living with them, as Jesus did in his earthly ministry, that of Emmanuel, God with us, but God living inside them, real Emmanuel, that by the Spirit of God there is now life transformed inwardly, and that God, now living inside humanity, those who are united in Christ, dwells in them as his temple. That is what can bring transformation. Not just a king who says, I'm here, I'm a good king, I'm altruistic, now everybody just, can we agree to stop wars? 
But does that mean that Daniel 7 and Psalm 2 and Isaiah 9 aren't true? A child is born, a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder and the increase of his government and peace will have no end. It sure doesn't look like it, does it? But again, the Advent is, Advent is the story of two Advents. I think, as I've heard some, another person say, I think this rabbi is perhaps looking for the X, Y, and Z of the Messiah's kingdom, the age of the Messiah, without first realizing that A, B, C, and all of the other letters must come first. We could say that the Allies won World War II on D-Day, right? They won it. Once they established their beachhead, it was over. But of course, there was a long intervening time of struggle and of death before the war was finally over. And so we might say that Jesus won the war in his first coming, in his first advent. The beachhead was established in the manger in Bethlehem. It was over once he accomplished what he came to do, the mortally decisive blow now dealt on the enemy uh, on, on a cross in Jerusalem. But we still await the final armistice day, the final day of full and comprehensive peace. Our peace is won, finally and fully. Wakanda forever, everybody, right? We are no longer reconciled or no longer irreconciled with God. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the world still rages. The observations in Psalm 2 are still true. How the nations rage, both against one another and against God, its creator and king. So he will come again. And the goal of the peace of Christ's kingdom is final and comprehensive peace. The goal of Christ's kingdom is resurrection for us individually and for the world. More on that in two weeks. But how's this for peace? Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Christian, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power of God that made a dead and cold corpse inhale, open his eyes, and walk out is at work in you. The same power available that brought Jesus from the dead is now coursing through your soul, coursing through your body, your spirit. It is alive in Christ, sharing the resurrection life. Be now who you will be forever because of the spirit that is at work in you. You're alive in Christ now, but the Spirit will do so again in our physical death as well, bringing to life and putting the imperishable, that which can never die, onto the imperishable, that which will die. But not yet. The news out there is dreadful. Like, just turn on the news if you'd like to be depressed. It's awful. Oftentimes, the news in here is dreadful. It's heartbreaking. It's devastating. While it's true that his kingdom of peace brings subjective guilt feelings in line with our objective guilt eradication, praise the Lord, that's enough, and that's enough for us. He's already done the hardest part, but man, we can also, in this season of Advent and throughout the rest of the year, sit with one another and cry with one another and ask, how long, O oh Lord? How long will the nations rage? When will you come and bring total and final comprehensive peace? 
How long will you let injustice reign? How long will you let violence and death corrupt, corrupt this world? How long will children starve and wars destroy? How long will cancer rage and suicide steal? How long? How long will mothers miscarry? Fathers leave their families. How long? And so we wait and we look in patient expectation, in patient longing for December 25th. The day in which he established his be- the beachhead of the war, established the beachhead of the victory, the down payment that shows us that we know that, that he has already accomplished the hardest part, he will certainly, though he has, he's already accomplished the battle against sin, our greatest and oldest enemy, doing away with wars will be no problem for him, King Jesus, who has established and created life. Lord willing, he will cultivate in us a waiting, a looking, a patient longing for his second coming, where he will appear again, this time not in weakness, but with power and with justice, to right wrongs and to do away with death forever. All forms of rebellion and its effects. O come, thou king of nations, bring an end to all our suffering. Bid every pain and sorrow cease and reign now as our prince of peace. Rejoice. Everybody, rejoice. Even amidst all of the raging in the world and in our own context, rejoice. Why? Emmanuel, God with us, shall come again with us to dwell. Let's look and wait with patient longing and expectation. Our Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word to encourage us. Our Father, we are thankful that you have given us your son to live and die for us. Father, we are thankful that you have given us your spirit to bring life to bring hope, to bring peace, to bring comfort. God, we pray that in these uh, conversations that we have, perhaps over dinner tonight, perhaps amongst our dinner tables this week, with our children, with our coworkers, with our roommates, Father, we pray that you might cultivate and grow in us a longing for your second coming. Help us to not get too comfortable with this world. Help us when um, devastating news, when pain and sorrow hit inevitably, when they come, Father, help us to pray. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come and bring final and full and comprehensive peace to the world that you have created. So, Lord Jesus, we look even now and we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.